everyone. Welcome to She Thinks a Podcast, where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg. And on today's episode, we explore the lessons of the 20th century and apply them to today. In America, we have a struggle for the soul of the country, a battle between those who want to keep America as it was founded, an America where capitalism and the American dream are supreme, and those who are pushing for America to look differently, to follow in the footsteps of communism and socialism. Well, we're going to explore this trend and what the ultimate cost will be to Americans if the 21st century turns a blind eye to history. And we have the perfect person to break it down for us. It's our honor to have on Dr. Henry Noah, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and International Affairs at George Washington University. He served on President Reagan's National Security Council as a senior staff member responsible for international economic affairs. Among other duties, he was the White House Sherpa for several annual G7 economic summits and also served in the Department of State from 1975 to 1977 as special assistant to the Undersecretary for Economic Affairs. In 1977, he received the State Department Superior Honor Award. He is the author of numerous books, including his latest, Conservative Internationalism, Armed Diplomacy under Jefferson, Polk, Truman, and Reagan, and has published numerous articles in scholarly and policy journals. Dr. No, it is an honor to have you on She Thinks. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's nice to be here. And that is quite the bio. I actually just wanted to start with a personal question. I'd love to hear how you decided to get into this line of work. What is it? Was it your childhood dream to study political science and international affairs? You know, I think it was probably more a case of the apple falling close to the tree. My father was a professor. And of the three children, I think I was the one who sort of uh, followed him more directly. Uh, so from early on, I kind of knew I liked the templative life. Uh, and it wasn't perfectly clear, but over a period of 10 years or so, it became very clear that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get the PhD and I wanted to teach and I wanted to do research. And, and frankly, it was a very, um, good move on my part. Um, I, uh, um, realized that uh, the other options would have taken me on a very different course. One would have been the military, and the other, oddly enough, would have been uh, the ministry. So um, I went, I think, into the line of work that was that I was made for, uh, which is public life, public policy, international affairs, trying to understand them and then teach them as uh, one can to the younger generation. Uh, a lot of history, by the way, which as you're opening remark indicated is very, very important. And unfortunately, we we lack a lot of historical context in the debates that we have today. Well, we thank you for your service to this country and being here to help us make sense of what's going on in this country. And I want to start with that history. Going back to decades prior, of course, we were fighting against communism and socialism in the 20th century. And here we find ourselves today where socialism is a popular term among young people. And so I guess the big, broad question is, is how did we get here? Where were we and what has been the change to where we are today? Well, I think one of the big turning points uh, in the post-Cold War, in the post-war, World War II period, was in fact the 1970s, when we had roaring inflation in this country. Um, we had um, very little growth. Um, we were very eager to try to um, um, deal with environmental issues, 
population, uh, pollution. Uh, so we had a lot of regulations. Um, we had a lot of trade restrictions uh, in the 1970s. And uh, so the country was in uh, the kind of difficulty that in many ways we find ourselves today or we find ourselves moving into that period. Now, from my experience, obviously, I think the, um, um, two, tra- the two terms of Ronald Reagan's administration uh, did an awful lot to turn this whole situation around and basically to give us for the last four decades, um, very high growth compared to his other periods in history, uh, very low inflation. We don't really know what inflation is because we haven't had it for 40 years. We expanded enormously the world economy by adding new countries uh, to the global marketplace. Uh, and um, we generally created a much more efficient both national and international uh economy. And that permitted this growth with low inflation. Um, And by the way, to contrast that with what was happening in the communist world during that period, I began to travel regularly to Eastern Europe and particularly to East Germany, where I had relatives, uh, starting in the 1960s. And if you wanted to see a contrast between the capitalist world of the West and the communist world of the East, that was the time to see it. I would visit my cousin, actually my father's cousin, but uh, in uh, Germany and would go shopping with her. And in their little shops, there would be one kind of milk, one kind of cheese, one kind of bread. And if you wanted anything that was special, like chicken or fish or meat, you had to go to a counter where you were rationed uh, a a certain amount that you could, uh, that was allowed for each family. Um, You couldn't get any good coffee. You couldn't get any good fruits. Um, It was a terrible system. Uh, And um, that contrast always stayed with me. And I always wished that I could, uh, that I had a small uh, iPhone with me at that time to take pictures of all this, to show to students what the difference is between an economy that is based on competition, on price competition, on innovation on competition uh, in innovation uh, and growth and an economy that is focused on uh, distribution uh, and control, um, political control. Uh, so um, the we, we are in a situation now that is a little hard to think about because we haven't experienced uh, uh, inflation. And inflation, I think, is the big, for me, it's the big concern as we look ahead to the next uh, five to 10 years. And we had the consumer price index come out this week and say that inflation is the worst we have seen it in roughly 40 years. I know a hashtag trending and social media was bare shell bare shelves Biden in the past couple of weeks still is going strong today. People tweeting out pictures of empty shelves in the grocery stores. I did the same, couldn't find potatoes the other day, couldn't find onions at the store, among many other things, including toilet paper. And it seems strange to us as Americans to see this. And it makes me say to myself, and I'm sure many others, that this isn't how America is supposed to be. So we have had our president, President Biden, uh, decry capitalism and saying that it is not a fair system. Why, first of all, is this happening? 
the inflation that we've seen, because I think COVID makes things complex and convoluted that we've gone through this pandemic. What is COVID related that we couldn't really get out of? What uh, is related to bad policies? And what does it all mean? Yeah, well, I think uh, we are we are we are now practicing, I think, bad policies. Uh, into, let's think for a moment without the complication of COVID. Um, we have had a shift in policies, rather significant shift in policies over the last two, three, maybe years, uh, maybe over the last five years. Uh, and they have moved us in a direction now that I think is going to recreate some of the conditions that we had in the 1970s. That is, we have expanded demand dramatically uh, through both monetary and fiscal stimulus, pushing a lot of money out into the system, which inevitably increases demand. While at the same time, we have imposed more and more regulations, trade restrictions, other kinds of constraints on the supply side of the economy, making it more difficult for goods to be produced. Now, COVID has complicated that uh, because it has created a panic uh, from time to time in the uh, in the economy where people will buy a lot of goods uh, because they think that uh, this panic is this, this COVID is going to create a long standing situation. So they buy up all the toilet paper or all the, um, um, uh, the, 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 what do you call it? The uh, rolling paper that we use. Uh, and, and, and that increases obviously uh, uh, prices and pushes prices up. And so we've had now 7% inflation just in the last year. Now, that compares to something like 15% that we reached in the 1970s. I think we're heading in that direction. Uh, and that's going to be very difficult to deal with. Inflation takes a long time to work its way in and a long time to work its way out. In the 1970s, we had, it took us 10 years, basically, maybe 15 years before we really pulled out of that bog that we were in in 1975. Uh, and if we go much more like we are going now, if we go another year or two uh, with this kind of stimulus and this kind of supply side constraint, uh, then I think we're going to have explosive inflation again in, in a very few years. By the way, um, the fact that we have now a more global economy, which is a product of the good things that have happened in the last four decades, but that fact means that we're much more dependent upon supplies from other countries. And so that has caused a lot of the empty shelves in our, uh, you know, uh, uh, markets, uh, grocery markets and so on uh, recently, uh, because those goods have not been able to get into the United States. They come from abroad uh, and they have been now uh, interrupted by the supply chain problems we've had. Uh, and um, that has increased the pressure on prices, because when goods are stalled out in the Pacific someplace, Lumber, for example, and other products that recently have shot up dramatically in price. Um, lots of furniture items, for example. Uh, that is a factor that you can't get the supply to where it belongs, where it can be bought, where it can be consumed. Uh, and so that drives prices up. Uh, so I, I wish there were a way. Unfortunately, we haven't taught this history. And therefore, young people have this idea that somehow or other, Capitalism is all about growth and not about poverty. But in fact, capitalism has done more to alleviate poverty than any other single, by far, than any other single uh, event that we can think of. Um, and 
that's uh, I, some, for example, I mean, we've had developing countries have been growing for the last three decades faster than the developed countries, than the advanced countries. That means we've been actually narrowing the difference between poor countries and advanced countries. That's unprecedented. We've never had three or four decades like that. So capitalism, with all of its problems, and it has problems, uh, it has nevertheless produced more goods, and those goods eventually do reach lower and lower. We create a middle class. Look what China has done in the last two decades. They've created a middle class. Uh, Now they think, I think erroneously, that somehow or other they're going to grow as fast with less dependence on the world market. They probably aren't because their domestic market is controlled. It's it's very much like the communist markets in Europe uh, during the Cold War. Uh, and so uh, uh, they're going to have some problems now as a result of these uh, restrictions that they're imposing. But we will, too. Uh, and um, somehow or other, we're going to have to work our way through this. We're going to have to realize that uh, we, we can... We have a very big world market with lots of goods flowing back and forth. We may want to slow that growth of that market down a bit. uh, uh, And we may want to shift some of our supply manufacturing operations, maybe out of China and into Vietnam or into India, where they may be more reliable. Their supply may be more reliable. So we'll have to make some adjustments. But in general, uh, that capitalist economy has worked miracles, you could say, in the last four decades. One of the uh, things I think that I think is fascinating about the claim that capitalism is is such an evil and it is only there to help the rich and just impoverishes the poor is that we still have so many people trying to come into our country, both legally and also crossing the border right now. If, if this was such a bad system, so many people wouldn't want to come to this country. So I always think that there's an interesting juxtaposition of what reality is on that. But I think we I want to focus on the trade issue, which you have mm-hmm. mentioned. There is a big push in this country to have more items that are made in America. A few years back, that was because we just wanted to try to hold on to manufacturing and didn't want that to go away. And that was a debate we were having. But as somebody myself who does support free trade and think that that does uh, spread democracy across the world, we do find ourselves in an interesting situation where trading with a country like China, where they have horrific human rights violations, presents a different issue. It's should we prop them up economically based on how they treat people within their country, but also based on their disdain for the American way of life as as it is. And so how do you view free trade through the lens of trading with countries that are bad actors? Should we never do that? Should we pull out of trade of China altogether? Or is free trade still a way that one might argue is a way to try to defeat that communist style of running a country? Yeah, I think you have to do both. Uh, and, And I know Ronald Reagan did both. That is, he focused on trade issues and he helped in those years to open up trade markets, especially to new countries like China. Um, And you have to take into account the political um, policies of the countries that you trade with. Um, In part, China's advantage in goods uh, that are made, um, uh, that are low tech goods that are made by um, manual uh, ways that is made by the labor force, um, they are benefiting from uh, essentially slave labor in their Western provinces where they have clamped down on the population and on the Muslim population in that part of China. 
and have forced them in effect to produce a lot of these goods at very low prices. So we need to make them aware of the fact that that's not what capitalism is all about. Capitalism is not about producing products at low prices. It's about eventually growing the economy and, and, and spreading that wealth uh, also to the poor people in provinces like Xinjiang. Uh, so that uh, now we may need some adjustments at the, at the current time in our trade relationships. We have expanded dramatically uh, in the last 20 years, brought lots of new countries in, including China. We may need a pause in our uh, trade relationships, just as I think we probably need a pause in our immigration program. We need to get control of uh, our immigration uh, system, certainly. Uh, And we also need, I think, to make some adjustments in our trade relations. Like I say, perhaps depend less on China for many of these goods that we import, many of the parts uh, that we import from China. Spread that out uh, as you would do, for example, if you were dependent upon China for a certain commodity, like we're dependent upon the Middle East for oil. Uh, You want to make sure that you can get oil from alternative sources. Well, in our case, in today's case, seems to me you want to make sure you can get your parts uh, for your economy, for building automobiles and so on, your semiconductor chips and so on. You want to make sure you can get those from alternative sources uh, and that you don't focus and concentrate entirely on one country. So we may have to back off a bit from the interdependence with China. By the way, China is doing that on its own. It's making decisions that are forcing its companies to to, to engage less with the international economy. So some of those adjustments might be good, but but here's the thing we need to remember. And I used to try to, you know, uh, make this point to my students by telling them to look at the labels on their blouses or on their shirts when we started to talk about trade, because the prices of those items are very low today um, because of the fact that we can import uh, low-cost products from countries that benefit from labor that is cheaper than ours, like China. Uh, and that's a benefit to China, but it's also a great benefit to us. So if we wanted to f- produce everything in America, if we wanted to make everything in America, uh, we would face a situation very quickly in which the prices of those products would go up very, very rapidly. And we wouldn't all be able to afford all of the shirts we have, or indeed even maybe the iPhone that we have. Uh, which is expensive to be sure still, but it would be much more expensive if we could not import from other countries. So we need to be balanced, but I think we are in a a position where we can pull back a bit uh, from the focus on trade interdependence uh, and and then make it clear to countries that are uh, oppressing their people and are obtaining an advantage uh, in trade uh, through essentially oppressed labor at home. I think we have to make it clear to them that this isn't what the world economy is about. This isn't what capitalism does. And uh, if they um, don't understand understand that, they're, they're not going to be able to participate in the benefits of that economy. Final question for you with the limited time that we have left is to make a some policy suggestions based on looking at the 70s, what happened under Carter and then under Reagan. As we apply those lessons to today, what is President Biden need to do if we have a changeover in Congress and midterms, what do they need to do? I, I assume part of that is don't continue to put more stimulus money into the economy of this taxpayer money going back to people. But what is the other lesson that we can take that we need to implement from a policy perspective? Well, you mentioned one of the two big things that we need to do. And this was one of the real, um, uh, you know, 
attributes of Ronald Reagan. He focused on the big things. He focused on the Cold War with the Soviet Union. In connection with the economy, he focused on two things, really. He said, we've got to get control of the money supply because we've been pouring money out there into the marketplace, creating this excess demand. And we have to cut back on federal spending. Uh, now, in order not to create an economy that simply contracts, he also emphasized tax cuts, which give people more money from their paycheck and allow them then to spend that money the way they decide to spend it rather than the way that the Congress decides to spend it or some uh, agency in the U.S. government. Uh, so he worked on those two, pro three problems, you could say, the Cold War, uh, trying to get tax cuts down and trying to, uh, tax cuts implemented and then trying also to uh, bring spending down and then to try to get control of the money supply. He focused on those big things. And it took, by the way, it took about four or five years before we saw any results of that. Those were tough years, 82 and 83, uh, when there was no apparent effect uh, of these policies. But eventually they began to have their impact. And by the time Reagan left office, we were on our way. Uh, to three decades of further growth uh, and uh, wealth, uh, not just for the rich, but also for the poor. You know, the, 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 let me just make this one last comment about the economy and about the rich. It's true that we liberalized financial markets in the course of the 1980s and the 1990s and the 2000s. And there was a group of people, financiers in effect, who were able to exploit that and make significant returns, all right, more so than could the average person. That's what gave us the 1% that is at the top of the income ladder. But if you look at the rest of the country, and by the way, we should do something about that 1%. We can tax those people more. That's a possibility. Uh, this carry interest uh, benefit that they enjoy is something that we ought to examine and maybe take away. Um, but those... Um, uh, when you look at the general population, household incomes have gone up. They've gone up dramatically in the last three decades, maybe in part because or to some extent in part because there's second those women and all of those minorities and all of those men who didn't have jobs back in the 1970s. So uh, that um, the situation with respect to the level of income and the level of wealth in our country is much better than you can see if you just focus on the top 1% and worry about the gap between the 1% and the rest. The rest have risen, and that's what we want to continue to do and we want to preserve at the same time that we remove some of the special benefits that the financiers uh, were able to exploit. Well, I think as we take a look at anything today, because I believe there is nothing new under the sun, it's important to take a look back at history. That's why we appreciate people like you coming on, she thinks, to give us a history lesson. Um, Dr. No with George Washington University and also author of the late, his latest book, Conservative Internationalism, Armed Diplomacy under Jefferson Polk, Truman and Reagan. Doctor, we so appreciate you coming on the program today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. And before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. And investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. Please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That's iwf.org backslash donate. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode and let your friends know where they can find find more she thinks. From all of us here at IWF, thanks for watching.